For the past week, we've been looking at events from a week over 2,000 years ago that impacted the world to such a degree that we, we still observe and remember those events. Everything changed during that week. We started looking at how, last week we started looking at how Jesus Christ came into the, um, into the city and the people of the city thought he was a conquering king, but he wasn't coming to conquer the Romans. He was coming to set them free from their sins. He was coming to be a suffering savior. And then on Wednesday night, we, we looked at the crucifixion, the horrificness of the crucifixion, the torture the pain, the false accusations, all these that were lobbed at our Savior. And he never backed down. He never fought back. He took all that pain and grief upon himself for our sake. And for the Christians, I would imagine it was a a dark time. We see about a week before that, there were thousands that were following him. And now as he made its way to the cross, there's only a few that made it to the cross with him, and they actually stayed a little ways away. Within a short period of time, the numbers dwindled. People got scared. They were afraid what was going to happen to them. They were confused because here's the Messiah, and he's being nailed to a cross. Looking at it through the world's eyes, it didn't make any sense. They couldn't understand what was taking place, but we know the entire story. We know what happened when Sunday came. According to the Bible, Jesus Christ would have been crucified on Wednesday, the day before the high Sabbath, which was on Thursday. The women would have prepared and bought the spices and ointments they needed to prepare the body on on Friday. And then on Saturday was the second Sabbath of that week. So they couldn't anoint the body then. They had to wait and anoint the body on Sunday morning. So first thing Sunday morning, they got up to do just that. They headed to the tomb. I'm not sure how they thought they were going to get in the tomb because they'd placed guards there. They'd rolled a big stone there to make sure nobody had messed with the body. Yet when they got there, they found something amazing. They found that that stone had been rolled away. They saw that the guards had been turned to stone. And they found a tomb that was empty. Confusion set in, of course. Mary was there, and and as she's there, and and she's wondering what happened, she hears a voice, she thinks it's the the gardener, the groundsman, and she she asks him, what have you done with my Savior? Where, Where have they taken his body? That he said, Mary. We see how personal the resurrection was and the fact that he addressed her simply as Mary. She immediately recognized his voice just as he said, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. It's amazing how even a father and son, you know, the the son knows the father's voice. Even today I can be someplace crowded with my adult son and, and he can be a little way away. And if I call out his name, he hears me. He ignores me. 
but he hears me. I know he hears me because he stops and out of instinct starts to turn and then turns the other way. But he hears me. Over all the clutter, over all the confusion, he hears my voice. And as soon as Mary heard heard Jesus' voice, she knew instantly who he was. Even in the dim lighting. Even not expecting to see him alive. She recognized him. She went back to tell the other disciples, the other apostles. She went back to tell them, and, and, and a couple of them, first they didn't believe her, then a couple of them came running. I love the account in John. John details this. He never calls himself by name. He just calls himself the one that Jesus loved. You know, the author taking a little, uh, the writer taking a little liberty there. And he points out how, how him and Peter are running to the grave, and Peter starts out first, but, but John gets to the grave first. He ran past him. But when he got there, remember, he stopped. I don't know, out of fear, out of reverence, out of, out of lack of understanding, whatever happened, he stopped at the door and looked inside. But Peter came. Peter and his boldness. The same Peter that had, had denied Christ three times just before this, just a few days earlier, he boldly went into the, into the room into the tomb and found it empty. We look to that day and when, you know, we gather together once a year to, to, to recognize that day that Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. You see, he didn't just pay for our sins. He, he walked out to prove that the debt was paid, to prove that he was God. We are saved and healed by his stripes, by his sufferings. The resurrection is just the signature on the check. Somebody asked me if we were doing anything different today for Easter. Are you doing anything different for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday? Are you doing anything different? And I had to think about it for a little bit because, I mean, not really. Oh, we've got some plants. The choir sang a special. Did a great job, by the way. I put on my whole suit. I got, I got socks on and everything. It's, we went to town this morning. But we talk about the resurrected Christ every Sunday. Our church is based upon that resurrected Christ. He is central to what we do. So to do something special and like, oh yeah, let me tell you about the resurrected Christ. You've already heard it. You already know that he died on the cross and rose again the third day to pay for your sins so that today you can live free. Remember, he didn't come as a conquering king over the Romans. He came as a suffering suffering savior to save save you from your sins. And just as real as the power was on that first day, it is just as real today. He still has the power to free you from the shackles of sin. He still has the power to do that for you should you choose. very personal act. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection per se, but I wanted you to see something that the resurrection has empowered. You see, the resurrection happened so that Acts chapter 2 could could become a reality. If you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we're not going to read the entire chapter. I hope you'll go home and read it today. 
It's a powerful, powerful portion of the Word of God. Acts chapter 2, if you, if you don't have a Bible, you want to borrow a Bible, hold up your hand. If you, if you need a Bible of your own, hold up your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Does anybody need a Bible? Right back here, Wes. You get him a Bible. Anybody else need a Bible? We only have one size. Just hold it out longer. Hope you have long arms. We did get a different style of Bible this time. Still King James, of course. But the print is a little bigger in this one, but it's still not, it's not as big as this one. I don't know. It seems like the older I get, the smaller they make the words on the page. I don't know why they do that. But in Acts chapter number 2, we see that the church that Jesus founded while he was here on the earth, that church is together, and they're worshiping together. They're together in one accord. In Acts chapter number 2, verse number 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heareth them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? So something amazing happened on this day. On this day of Pentecost, the church is meeting together. This wasn't the formation of the church. Jesus Christ started the church. But the church is there, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. You see, there's a transition between the time Jesus Christ was here until the time the Holy Spirit came. Jesus Christ told us that he had to go away. He had to go away so that the Comforter could come, so that the Spirit could come. He told them this was going to happen. He promised them this was going to happen. He said that they were going to have greater power because of this. You see, prior to this, when Jesus Christ was here on the earth, the disciples, the apostles, they got their power directly from Jesus Christ. Their, their power for ministry, their power to preach, their power to serve, it all come directly from Jesus Christ. But now Jesus is gone. He is left. They saw him go up to heaven. They saw him ascend. And now they're in that period where, where they don't have Jesus anymore, at least not his presence, his physical presence. But he told them one was coming. So there's a small gap of time where they don't have Jesus Christ's power, they don't have the Holy Spirit's power. But then the Spirit comes upon them. Today we're very, very blessed. We don't have to wait for that, that wind to come through the window. We, we have the, the power of the Holy Spirit from the time we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. He comes upon us. And we have that power. The Bible says, Jesus said that power is greater than his. The power that he gave them was as powerful as this power, that we would be able to do mighty things with this power. And we see throughout the word of God that they did. They did do mighty things. It's an amazing time. They all started to speak in tongues, and, and it defines what tongues is here. People would come from with different uh, languages, and they would all hear it in their own language. See, tongues was never an unknown language. It wasn't a hidden language. It wasn't a, a heavenly language. It was a, a language of men. 
People say, well, uh, tongues was the language that God used. Well, every time I see God speaking in the Bible, he's using a known language. Every single time. He uses the language that's known to the person that he's speaking to. And that's what was happening here. They gave them the power. This wasn't something of themselves. Of themselves, they couldn't do this. This was from the Holy Spirit. He gave them power. The Holy Spirit still gives us power to do things that are outside of our comfort zones, that are outside of our abilities. If you knew me, really knew me, you would know this isn't me. I don't like being in front of people. If it was up to me, I would stay home all day. I would be a remote worker. Because that's how I like people. But the Holy Spirit gives me the power and the ability to be able to do this. We've had some of our men that have stood in the pulpit and led a, led a, you know, a lesson, taught, taught a, a study or something. And I say, hey, let's, let's, let's get some of the men to do this. You, you take this week, and you take this week, and you take this week. And, and almost <laughs> wholeheartedly, they would come to me afterwards and say, I'm not doing that again. It's a little harder than it looks. It's harder than it looks, except it's not me, it's him. And as long as it's him, I just get the dry mouth. I just proclaim. It's all him. He still uses, he still empowers us. Whatever it is that he has you to do, he will never give you a task. He will never give you something to do that he does not also empower that task. No matter how big, no matter how scary it seems, you think, oh, I think he wants me to sing in the choir, but I can't do that. You're right, you can't, but he can. He can. I know the people that are standing up here, and I can tell you about half of them the same way. They'd rather be home all by themselves than standing in front of you singing. But the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, gives them the utterance, gives them that power to be able to do and sing and proclaim the gospel through song. That's not them. That's the Holy Spirit. But I want you to see some things about this, about this resurrection, about this cross, about our king. I want you to understand how personal this is. Oftentimes we look at the resurrection Sunday and we, we look at it as Jesus Christ died for all the world. And that's true. But we also need to remember that Jesus Christ didn't just die for all the world. He died for each individual in the world. So to say he died for all of you is true but it's more appropriate and more accurate to say that he died for Corey. He died for Jackie. He died for Jerry. He died for John. He died for David. Maybe even Wes. Because it's individual. And one of the things we see about the book of Acts is the book of Acts, even though it talks a lot about the church as a whole, and the transition from Jesus Christ to the Holy Spirit and the way the church flourished, it's about individuals. It's about people. First thing I want you to see, though, is in verse number 23 of chapter 2. Like I said, we can't go through every single verse in here, but I want you to read the entire chapter. Verse 23, it says, Him being, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Look at that phrase in there, foreknowledge of God. Do you know what that means? 
That means before God, Jesus Christ went to the cross, God knew. Before Jesus Christ was born on the earth, God knew. Before he set the earth in motion, before he separated light from dark and water from land, he knew. God knew. He's all-knowing. The crucifixion didn't happen by accident. I remember, you know, as a kid, I used to think, man, if I could go back in time and I, I could stop that. You know, because I was dumb as a kid. There were those that tried to stop it then, Peter being one of them. He tried to stop it and was rebuked because it was something that had to happen. It was something that was foreknown and planned by God. Jesus had to drink of that cup. He had to go to the cross. Nothing anybody could do. No power could stop it. The only one that had the power to stop it was him, and he stayed quiet the entire time. Never cried out. Never called down an angel. While the thieves were, were wailing on the crosses, he was praying for the souls of those that nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a personal cross. A personal cross that was prearranged, a prearranged plan by God. This plan is very personal. In Acts 23, it says, or Acts 2, 3, it says that, that when that fire came in, it rested on what? Each one of them. It was personal. In 2.38, Peter is praying and he, or preaching, and what does he say? He says, repent, each one of you. Repent, each of you. It's a personal thing. Repentance is a personal thing. Each and every one of us has to repent for Jesus Christ. There's nothing that, that I can do other than proclaim the gospel for you to get saved. I can't even save myself. Jesus Christ had to do that. I can't save my children. I can't save my wife. Each one individually has to make that decision. This blows the mind of people. this powerful plan of God. Because they say, well, if God is sovereign, then he controls everything. And there's a, a misunderstanding, a misapplication of the Bible that because, because God is sovereign, that since he knows everything and he controls everything, that he decides who gets saved and who goes to hell. That's not what the Bible says. That's contrary to the word of God. Does he control everything? Yes. Does, he know, does God know right now whether you're going to go to heaven or hell? Yeah, he does. He does. But he makes the choice yours. You see, in his sovereignty, they, people try to take God down. They try and put him in a box, saying God can't do this because he's sovereign. Well, God's sovereignty opens up the doors that he can do whatever he wants. And it's a powerful plan. Look at John chapter number one with me. Hold your, hold your hand there in Acts, but go over to John with me real quick. When you get to John chapter 1, say amen. You guys beat me there again. John chapter number 1, verse number 12. I want you to look at this verse with me. It says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You see what he did? Because he is sovereign... Because he paid the price of Calvary, he gave us the ability to make a choice. 
We don't make the choice because of ourselves or because of our power. He gave us that power in his sovereignty, in his all-knowingness, in his all-powerfulness, in his all-controllingness. He gave us power to make choices, to make decisions. It's called free will. Each one of you made a choice, made a few choices this morning. You got up this morning, you decided whether or not you were going to come to church or not. You made that choice. A lot of people chose not to. You had the ability to make that choice. Some of you are probably saying, no, do you know my mom? Do you know my wife? I didn't have a choice. But you really did. You also made a choice as to what you were going to wear. You made a choice as to which service you were going to come to, whether you're going to come early for the 830 service or whether you're going to come to the 10 o'clock service. You made that choice. You made a lot of choices today. You made a lot of good choices today because you're here. You probably made a choice as to what you're going to eat for breakfast or whether you're going to eat breakfast. You'll make a choice later as to what you're going to eat for lunch, where you're going to go after church. You make choices all day long. God made us different than the rest of creation. Most of creation doesn't have a choice. The tree doesn't have a choice as to what fruit it puts out. If it's given the right nourishment, it puts out whatever fruit it is of that tree. Apple trees put out apples, oranges put out oranges. They don't have a choice as to whether or not they're going to grow or not grow. That's just by by its environment. They don't make those decisions. They just do. God empowers it, and they do it. But we have a choice whether or not we bear fruit or not. Each one of us has a choice. We have to make that choice. But as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We have the power to become the sons of God. That's what the resurrection did. That's the the first and biggest piece of the resurrection is it empowered us to be able to make a choice whether or not we're going to follow Jesus Christ or not, whether or not we're going to be believers, whether or not we're going to turn from our sins and turn to him. That's the first thing that it does. But Acts chapter 2 shows us a whole new level. It gives us a whole new purpose. It shows us that it's not just about our salvation, But it's about our empowerment to do his will, to do his service, to do his ministry here on this earth. You see, because for most of us, there's a period of time between the time we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior until we're called home to heaven. Some, it's very quick. But most of us have time. Most of us have years in between. And during those years, Jesus didn't call us just to be stagnant, just to sit. He called us to be powerful. He had a powerful plan. In that personal cross. And then we have a personal king back in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. We have a powerful king that was raised up by God. He's raised up by God and coronated by God. Therefore, in verse 33, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the, of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Verse 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. We have a personal king. Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection was coronated king. He was always God. But now the stamp has been placed upon it. You know, recently they had a 
the, king, the queen died in uh, England. And technically, she died, her son became king. But to make it official, to put the stamp on it, they have to have a coronation. There has to be a service, a dictated service, a point in time where they, where they put the stamp on it and say that you're the king. And that's what happened at the resurrection. He was born of this world, king of kings and lord of lords. His coronation was his resurrection. The stamp was placed upon it. Make sure that it was official and everything was done right. The center of Easter is the resurrection. That's why we call it Resurrection Sunday. He is the king of the universe. He is the king of the world. The only question because of the power that he gives us to make decisions is, is he king of your life? Is he your king? Each one of us has to make that choice for ourselves. After salvation, we have to decide whether or not he becomes our king. There's two of those Bible words we like to throw around. We don't always explain them very well. That's justification and sanctification. You ever heard those words before? You've heard them before? Danny, you've heard those before? You want to come up and explain them? No? You want to come explain them? No. Actually, <laughs> he probably could. But for most of us, we, it, it, even if we know what they are, it's, it's like we know what it is, but we can't explain what it is. So very, very simply, what justification is, that's, that's the one-time act we got saved. That's when our sins were taken away, our sins were washed away, our heart was made white as snow. Every, all of our sins were justified by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And once something is justified, it's put away. It's done. All of our sins are taken care of. Sanctification is that ongoing purification that takes place in the Christian's life. It's that ongoing purification where we, we strive to be more like Christ every single day. We strive to be more and more like him every day. That's our sanctification. That's also empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not something we do of our own power, although we have to choose it. We have to desire it. It's not something we do of our own power. It's something that, we're, that is done through his power. But it's an ongoing purification process that takes place. We have a personal king. And then he didn't just leave us with a personal savior, a personal king. He left us with a personal church. You see, he left us the Holy Spirit, but he also gave us the church. And what most of the book of Acts is about is about that church they left us with. The church he founded explodes. It, it expands greatly as a result. It expands greatly our personal church needs a personal repentance. In verse number 38, then Peter, this is the same Peter that denied Jesus just a month before. This is the same Peter who tried to stop the crucifixion by cutting off the guard's ear. This is the same Peter who would rather listen to his emotions than listen to Jesus. Verse number 38, now with the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is different. He is completely different. Verse number 38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You see that? Repent 
Receive the Holy Ghost. We don't have to wait for that wind to come in the window anymore. Now when we repent, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have that Holy Ghost that He is preaching in the power of. For the promise, verse number 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, save yourself from this untoward generation. So he's telling them, you need to make a change. You need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to accept Christ. Then you'll get the Holy Spirit. You're going to have that power of the Holy Spirit. That's your gift. And it's not just for you. It's for your children and your children's children's and the, the, the afar off children's children's children's. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you were on his mind personally. And you weren't even thought of, your parents weren't even thought of, your great-grandparents weren't even thought of yet. And yet we were all on his mind as he hung on the cross. Not just dying for the sins of the world, but dying for your sins specifically. That's powerful. That is power. That repentance. That repentance was a, was a transformation that was brought about by trusting Christ. That baptism is the, is the proclamation of that. Baptism is that proclamation because, you know, when somebody repents and their heart changes, we can't always see it. Even if we see a difference in their actions, we, you know, sometimes we're not sure what that is. But when they get baptized, that's an outward expression of what took place inside their heart. This is why baptism is, is for believers, not for babies, not for, not for small children. It can be for children, but they have to be believers first because it's a, it's a picture of what's taking place inside of their hearts. We always see this order, repent, believe, and then be baptized. It aligns, the baptism aligns you with the body, and here he's preaching to the church or the people that have come to that church. He's telling them, repent, be baptized. It aligns you with that church. What is the biblical recipe for victory? Very simply, plead the blood of the Lamb. We plead the blood of the Lamb. We, we, we reach out to the power of that blood. We preach this book, and then we present our bodies a living sacrifice before God. Want us to grow spiritually? That's how you grow spiritually. That's how you do it. Then we see the reception of the message. In 41 and 42, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayers. The word was received. There's generally three things that, three ways that the word is taken. As we go out and, and, and share the word with the world, there's usually three ways. Just like this morning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are some, if you go online, you'll see people that are on there criticizing it. They're criticizing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. They don't believe it. Or if they believe it, they believe it was some kind of a trick or some kind of a stunt. There are those that try to over-scrutinize it. They try to overstudy it. They get caught up in the minutia instead of accepting it by faith. And then there are those who personalize it personalized crucifixion, a personalized resurrection. That's one of the things as I've gotten older it's become easier for me to do and it, it breaks my heart sometimes. When I realized the resurrection and the crucifixion were for me. You know, we sang some songs this morning and 
and Danny and I don't get together and say, oh, this song will be good for this part of the sermon and like that. You know, he, he knows basically what the topic's going to be and we just go from there. But you notice how personal the songs were this morning? Particularly the one that asked the question, were you there? How can that not break your heart? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they falsely accused him? Were you there when they put the nails in his hands? Were you there when he died on the cross? Were you there when he said it is finished? Were you there? And sometimes I think we read the stories and we look at the things in the Bible and we think that it's just that. It's just a story. But these things really happen. And God has given us the ability, he's given us an imagination that we're able to take ourselves and we're able to put ourselves in the picture. And, and, and this is what meditating on the word looks like. The Bible calls us to meditate on his word. This is what meditation in the Bible looks like. We put ourselves in there. What did it look like? What did it sound like? What did it smell like? What did it feel like to be there when they nailed our Savior to the cross? What did it feel like for Mary when she thought the body had been stolen? And what did it feel like as she ran back to tell the disciples, he's alive. He had risen just like he said he would. He is alive. What did that feel like? What were they thinking as they ran to the tomb? What were they thinking when he appeared to them in the upper room? What were they thinking? How did it feel? How do you respond? How do you respond to the truth of resurrection? There's no command in the Bible to be baptized in the Spirit. There's no command in the Bible to be slain in the Spirit. There's one command, a positive command in regards to the Spirit, and that is to be filled with the Spirit. That's our command. But what does that mean to be filled with the Spirit? That doesn't mean to get more of Him, because we've got all of Him, because even a little bit of Him is still infinite power and still infinitely God. So we can't get more of Him. To be filled with the Spirit means we open up those parts in our lives that are empty of the Spirit, and we allow Him to move into those areas. Because a lot of people, they say, well, I'll let the Holy Spirit have my life for an hour on Sunday. Maybe two hours on Resurrection Week. And, and I'll let Him have an hour here, maybe ten minutes here, a little bit here, a little bit there. But, but God, my work is my work. My hobbies are my hobbies. My money is my money. My family is my family. Those are mine, God. You can have this. And he says, be filled. means God needs to be in your hobbies. He needs to be in your work. He needs to be in your family. He needs to be in your finances. He needs to be in every single part, everything of your life. That's what being filled is. And it's such a burden that's lifted. When we, when we start letting him take control and not trying to do everything ourselves. As I get older, I get tired. Does anybody feel like that? The guys were over here working the other day, last week. Man, they were working hard. And I was out here with them, watching. And I was getting tired watching them work. I finally had to leave. I couldn't take it anymore. Whew. And half of them are older than me. Maybe. 
One of them at least is older than me. Dean, are you older than me? No. <laughs> I'm looking at you right now. I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm tired. I'm not Dean tired. But as I get older, it just seems like the energy levels just go down and down and down. Right, Jerry? It happens. The best is we have good plans. I'm going to get up today and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then it's like 11 o'clock and we haven't done anything. What happened? I went to the bathroom 10 times. My wife says that's called oversharing. So we won't go down that road anymore. I get tired. It real tires sometimes. How awesome is it that when I give the Holy Spirit this pulpit, and I give the Holy Spirit my family, and I give the Holy Spirit my finances, and I give the Holy Spirit my hobbies, how awesome is it that now that's not my energy anymore? That's him. And he has unlimited energy. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't need naps. He has unlimited energy all the time. But we try and hold it close. We try and keep it close. And then we wonder why we don't get things accomplished. We don't get them accomplished because we're trying to do it in our own power. The Bible calls people like that shooting stars. You ever see a shooting star or a falling star or whatever you want to call them? You ever see those things? Sometimes the year we'll get, we'll get and we'll have a bunch of them. And they're pretty cool, aren't they? Because nothing's there. And then all of a sudden it's there and it's bright. And then what happens? It's gone like it was never there. The Bible says they're shooting stars. That's like the people that play being Christian. They're there. They're bright. They're excited. They come in all on fire. And next thing you know, you turn around and they're gone. Why? Because they're living in their power, not the power of the Holy Spirit. We need that injection of the Holy Spirit. We need him. It tells us in Ephesians 5.18, we won't turn there right now, but Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit. That's our command. How can I be filled? Paul's secret to being filled was very simple. He would humble himself. He would confess his sins, and he would surrender to God. This should be daily in the life of the Christian. Humble ourselves before God, confess our sins to God, and then surrender to God. And let him fill us and control us. And then we have our personal community. Everything we do, we have, we have two parts to. We have God's part, we have our part. Even when we're sharing the gospel with somebody, you know, we're like, oh, that's scary to go tell somebody the gospel. Understand, you just have a small, small, very small part of that. We share the gospel with somebody. God the Father already came up with the plan. Remember, he foreknew it? He already came up with it. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to be able to, to share it, gives the power to be saved, gives the power to convict the person you're talking to. He does all that. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered and died to give power to the payment of that plan. And your part, go and tell. You don't have to trick. You don't have to convince. You don't have to argue. You go and tell. And you know what's going to happen? The same thing that happened to Jesus. Some people are going to believe. Some people are not going to believe. And some people are going to want to kill you. We're no better than he is. Why would we expect better results? But our command is to go and tell. And if they, they accept, praise God. And if they reject or they want to kill us, well, we did our part. 
We can shake the dust off our boots when we walk into heaven knowing that we have clean hands. We did our part. What usually happens, though, this is the great thing about the gospel. I go to tell John the gospel, and he, oh, I don't want none of that. Ugh. Throws me out, right? A couple of days later, he's thinking about it. It's in his head. The Holy Spirit won't let it go. And it's there. And maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't send me back. And now he sends Dean. And then Dean comes. He gets even madder at Dean because he's been dwelling. The Holy Spirit's been working on him. Now, now he's going to take everything out on Dean. And Dean's like, whoa, just sharing the good news with you. And he's mad again. And Dean's like, what did I do? Nothing. You just did what you were supposed to do. And maybe two or three more people come up. And then, then finally, finally, Harmon comes around. And he tells him. And John's like, all right, I'll listen. And he accepts. And the rest of us have no idea. And we get to heaven, we're like, whoa, you made it? Can we get a recount on that ballot? No. Because we laid seed after seed and watered and watered and watered and the Holy Spirit did his job. All we did was just go and tell. That's all it is. Go and tell. God never designed us to be secret followers. He designed us to be social servants. He designed us to go and tell every single person. There's a big debate online whether or not women can be, can be preachers or not. The, that's the wrong question. The question is, does the Bible talk about women being pastors? And preacher and pastor are completely different things. Preacher is a job function of the pastor, many one of many. But preaching is something that he's called every believer to do. Not every believer is called to pastor. But every believer is called to preach. What are we to preach? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We preach it through our lifestyle. We preach it through our actions. And we preach it through our words. Everybody. And if you're not comfortable with that, if you don't feel like you can do that, you need to get closer to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's job. There's a difference between preaching and pastoring. Very few are called to pastor. Very few of the people that are actually pastoring today were ever called to be pastors. I know a ton of people that are standing in pulpits today that are just there because it's a job. And they were not called to do that. They just didn't have any other career choices. And they hate it. They hate it. When they leave the pulpit, they will let you know how much they hate it. They put on a happy face. I tell you, what you get with me is what you're going to get. I, I, I will talk. I temper it a little bit in the pulpit because my wife is my gift from God that helps me to understand that some things shouldn't be shared from the pulpit. I have a tendency of oversharing. I mean, I've never noticed that about me. But what you get when I'm back at the back door or what you'll get on work day or what you'll get if you see me at Publix is basically the same thing that you're seeing right now. It's the same because it's just all I am. It's all I've got. So in conclusion, this church, what do we need? What does our community need? What does God desire for his bride? What does God desire for his body? He desires the same thing he did in Acts chapter 2. He desires to send that wind, to fan those flames that are inside of you. 
to take those coals that are maybe, maybe they've gone dead. Maybe they've gone weak, but they're still there. You know, that fire never completely goes out in the Christian, but it can get to where it's almost unobservable. But you take a coal, you have a campfire that's gone out, but you dig in and you pull up the hot coals and you let the air get to them and you blow some wind on them. And what happens? The little fuel, they pop back alive. In Florida, we have wildfires every year now, it seems like. And after they put those wildfires out, you know what the fire department does? They stay on site. You know why? Because they know once the wind blows, the fire's going to pop back up again. This is the life of the Christian. Your fire may seem like it's completely out. You may seem like it's not even there anymore, but it's still there. You just need that fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to blow on it once again. You need to submit yourself to God. Confess your sins, submit yourself to God, and pray for that Holy Spirit to blow that fire on you once again. Everything in Acts is about ministry. Ministry is just a biblical word for service, for serving our churches, serving each other, and serving our community. Everything about Acts chapter 2, everything about the resurrection is designed to not only save us, but to prepare us for service, prepare us for his work to share our resources with each other, to share our stories with each other, to share our, our testimonies with one another. When we come to, to church, it's about, it's about service. It's about ministry. It's not about being fed. I've had people say, oh, I'm not going to be coming to church. Or, I, I left that church, and when somebody, a new visitor will come in, they'll, like, they'll say, I used to go to this church. I'm like, why did you leave? Well, I didn't feel like I was being fed. Well, that can be one of two things. Maybe it's a bad church. Maybe it's a bad church and they're not using the Holy Spirit. They're not using the Bible. Maybe, maybe it is. Most of the time, though, it's they're not going to the table with an appetite. You get all filled up on the world. You come to the table. You ever do that as a kid? You get a little extra money and you sneak to the store and you buy a bunch of candy. And then it's dinner time. You're sitting there at dinner and your parents, your mom's like, got to eat your food. You're already full because of all the junk. And they won't let you leave till you finish there's no room right you're full already so we tell our kids you know when they were little we tell you know when it gets closer to dinner you don't eat that right now hold that till after dinner we don't want to spoil your your appetite we need more christians coming to church with an appetite more christians come to the lord's table with an appetite and not filled up on the junk of the world church should be a place where we build each other up edify each other strengthen each other encourage each other, and prepare each other for the ministry to this world. The resurrection happened so that Acts chapter number 2 could happen. The resurrection happened so that we could be prepared, not just for heaven, but to live in this world. The resurrection happened not just to forgive people, but to transform us. First, have you been forgiven? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If so, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you? To have His way, to have His ministry in you? Are you? How is that manifesting itself? If you can't point to that manifestation in your service, there's a disconnect someplace. That disconnect is probably between you and the Holy Spirit. We need to get that right today. 